0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, February the 21st, 2023. Uh, We're talking pyramid schemes today, frauds, giant frauds. Uh, You're all thinking, of course, Bernie Madoff. We did a show with, not with Bernie Madoff, uh, for better or worse, he's not around anymore, but with uh, Jim Campbell, who had the opportunity to actually talk to Bernie Madoff while he was in jail on the Ponzi Boys. We also talked with Jim about uh, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried. Jim Campbell's book, Madoff Talks, is an interesting take on the whole Bernie Madoff saga. But of course, Bernie Madoff and Sam Bankman-Fried are peculiarly American versions of pyramid schemes. Um, And they exist in other countries as well. It's not just America, which is uh, the home of pyramids. Um, But in other countries, I think pyramid schemes reflect their culture. So Bernie Madoff and and Bankman-Fried are uniquely American. In France, Uh, There's a man called Gérard leritier, who is the 20th century uh, version of Bernie Madoff. And his pyramid scheme, um, when it comes to the French, of course, involved literature, uh, rare literary manuscripts, particularly uh, one associated with the Marquis de Sade, uh, He has also been involved in a $500 million uh, pyramid scheme. Who knows whether he's guilty or not? He looks rather guilty in his silk skirt, not skirt, silk scarf and rather uh, gallic, pleased with himself, visage. Um, But there's a broader story here, a bigger literary story, which my guest uh, Joel Warner has to tell. He wrote a piece a few years ago in Esquire, The Sadist Revenge, which brings together the story of de uh, manuscript, his 120 Days of Sodom, perhaps the most notorious book ever written, with the story of this pyramid scheme in France. Um, and now he has a new book out. It's out today. It just got reviewed in the New York Times. The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript, and the biggest scandal in literary history. Joel is joining us from Denver, Colorado. And as I joked, uh, Joel, before we went live, uh, it's not the kind of place one would associate with the Marquis de Sade? Is it Denver, Colorado? I don't suppose if he was around today, he would show up uh, in the suburbs of, of Denver. How did you get into this story? It's a it's a bizarre story.
1: Yes, I uh, I have to agree. I'm not the most uh, saudian of all uh, of all folks to be writing this book, but I was just intrigued by the story. Uh, way back in 2015, uh, not long after the French authorities. Accused Gerard R T A of being uh, the head of this giant Ponzi scheme. I had I had some friends who visited Paris and tried to see this notorious manuscript by the Marquis de Sade. And when they showed up at the door of this museum, they found it all uh, shuttered up, and they found police uh, carting boxes of materials out the front door. And and the police told them they said, "Look, uh, the guy who owns this place." has been accused of being the, the Bernie Madoff of France. And that, for me, was enough. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, this, th- there, there's a deeper story here between the alleged Ponzi scheme uh, and this uh, notorious, supposedly cursed scroll. It just seemed like a lot of, seemed like a fascinating story to really kind of dive into. Is
0: there a connection, Joel, in the story between the pyramid scheme and uh, the manuscript. The manuscript's genuine, and he paid real money for a real product. Is that fair? So this isn't actually part of the Ponzi scheme itself.
1: Well, well, it is, and we should also say the uh, the alleged Ponzi scheme because so far uh, no one has been kind of found guilty in court. Uh, but there is a direct connection. Uh, Gerard Leheretier, who I spoke with and met with several times, argues like argues that no. He can't be considered uh, Francis Virgin of the Mark uh, of Bernie Madoff because he was trading in real documents with real values, and that's true. Literally, his entire company was based on buying and selling manuscripts. So, folks all over France and beyond could, uh, could purchase shares of these manuscripts, including uh, 120 Days of Sodom, and they were promised by. Uh, the independent brokers that after five years they would get 40% returns on these shares. So literally uh, this notorious manuscript by the Marquis de Sade w- was turned into a financial vehicle. So, so again, explain what he's
0: been accused of. I understand he's, um, he hasn't been proved guilty in court mm-hmm. yet. But it, it sounds like uh he, there's a little bit of the, the Bernie Madoff about him. Maybe he's guilty, maybe he's not. I don't really care one way or the other. What, what, um, what has he been accused of, though? What, what exactly is the pyramid scheme? And how is it bound up in these manuscripts, if they're real?
1: So the idea is that this company tried something that had never been tried before in France, where it took all of these famous manuscripts and said, instead of just giving these over to wealthy collectors... Uh, we're going to use these as investment vehicles. We're going to offer shares of them to people all over Europe and say, Hey, you know, you can invest in your literary uh, heritage and you'll get these strong and steady returns after five years. Uh, now 18,000 people said this sounds like a great idea, and in 2014, though, the French authorities said, Look, this can't be real. There's no way that all these old manuscripts are going to be uh, increasing in value by forty percent every five years. This thing is clearly a Ponzi scheme, uh, where uh, where they just had to keep getting in more, getting more and more investors in to pay the old investors. And authorities were concerned that that one of these days this whole thing was going to collapse. Uh, so, is the company called um,
0: Aristophile? Yes, it is. Um, so it doesn't sound quite as Ponzi-ish as, uh, as, as the Bernie scheme, where he just took all his clients' money and essentially lost it and piled more and more of his losses on top of new investors. I mean, these, 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 these manuscripts have value. So it's just a question of him uh, inventing or exaggerating how much they would gain in value. Is that fair?
1: Exactly. And that's the thing. So uh, what Aristophil did is they had a lot of um, very well-paid uh, document experts who, after Aristophil would buy these manuscripts, whether it was from auctions or from, or from old families, would say, well, you know, maybe you paid 500,000 euros for this, but this, uh, this manuscript's actually worth 5 million euros. And they would sell that manuscript then to all these shareholders for for five million. So, you know, according to authorities, uh, there was uh, all of these manuscripts were massively uh, overpriced in order to kind of run the company.
0: There's something sad about most uh, Ponzi schemes. Of course, uh, I'm setting myself up for the pun about the Marquis de Sade uh, and sadness of Ponzi schemes. This Ponzi scheme in itself is perhaps not that interesting, certainly not worthy of a book. You've built your narrative uh of the curse of the Marquis de Said around him and his manuscript. So tell us about 120 Days of Sodom and the Marquis himself. Was he quite as naughty as he is presented in history?
1: Yes, he was uh he was a pretty uh A dastardly fellow for lack of a better word where he spent uh the first half of his life as a pre-revolutionary french aristocrat um engaging in blasphemous acts with prostitutes uh poisoning whores uh locking young people in his chateaus for his own sexual devices um and eventually when his mother-in-law got sick of all his antics she she had uh Yes. Oh, yes. 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 He had a wife and his mother-in-law, especially, got sick of all this. So they, uh, so is it?
0: girl. Is it? I'm sure. Uh, yeah. You mean the so, wife wasn't
1: sick of it? Well, the wife, uh, wasn't as built of such a uh, strong stuff as a, uh, as the mother-in-law. So unfortunately she went along with a lot of this, which is, uh, it's unfortunate uh so then they locked Sadaway and like what do you mean that she went along sports. with it she
0: was the was she the G- Giseline Maxwell to the, the the Epstein in this relationship
1: no she uh she was more she wasn't uh,
0: procuring young boys and girls for the marquee was she
1: not that much no she was more kind you of trying to kind of cover up <laughs> she she helped just one or with two a week yeah just a few she went uh she went and helped uh <laughs> kind of cover up the crimes because essentially she didn't want her family to uh, to be besmirched by all of this. Was he? It's a, so there is a little bit of the Jeffrey Epstein about this, um, this
0: Marquis. Do you think Jeffrey well, Epstein was trying to emulate, rival the Marquis?
1: Well, one thing is that uh, they supposedly found copies of the Marquis de Sade's works within Jeffrey Epstein's apartment. Uh, and that keeps happening. And that people. gets back
0: to Bernie. I'm sure they're all in it together. Although I don't think Bernie exactly. was particularly interested in women. He was maybe his wife, but that was about it. Um, to, to what extent did the Marquis represent this complete corruption, this collapse of morality of the French aristocracy, which, of course, was destroyed during the French Revolution? Or, or was it just an exceptionally
1: depraved character? That is the big question, Andrew, in that uh, the stuff that... Saad wrote, most notably, 120 Days of Sodom, is so extreme, uh, so excessive. Ever since he wrote these, people have been arguing about why he would have done this thing. You know, he wrote this 40 foot long scroll, uh, uh, 157,000 words about the most obscene thing ever imaginable, that it could never be openly published, especially at that time. So so some people say, yes, that this was someone who was actually trying to expose the corruption of the aristocracy uh, to to which he was born. Now, at the same time, uh, this is someone who loved all the perks of aristocracy. So this is not someone who was this kind of radical, kind of revolutionary. Uh, So other people say that he was literally this kind of unrepentant lunatic who was writing about the crimes he both committed and the crimes that he wished uh, wished that he committed while 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 he was in prison. He was imprisoned by two French kings,
0: the, the two last French kings, and then Robespierre and Napoleon. It's quite an achievement. He annoyed everybody. Oh yes, everybody hated this guy. And what was he like? As a, was he as reprehensible in person as as he was
1: uh, or, or on the page? We have found a lot of letters uh, that were saved by the Saad family. They were kind of discovered uh, mid-20th century, uh, holed up in a secret room of his chateau. And uh, on one hand, this is someone who's incredibly selfish, who is, uh was incredibly uh, unaware of the effects of his crimes on other people. But there were moments of self-reflection uh, during the French Revolution where he... He pretended to be a revolutionary just to basically save his own neck. Uh, there were these moments where he said, I can't go along with all this murder and destruction. So at some points, even the uh, uh, the bloody attack of the French Revolution ended up being too much for the Marquis de Sade. It's lucky that he kept his head. I mean, man...
0: Many people lost their head, much less deserving than him. How did he
1: actually survive, Joe? Oh, he was actually marked f- for execution. Um, he, he was actually put down a list of people to uh, to go to the guillotine, and you know, while he was in prison, and f- and for some reason, which we don't know, uh, that day uh, the executioner skipped him. And... So there's a Dostoevsky in quality to this, of course. Although yes, he's no Dostoevsky. And that was the second time he'd actually escaped execution. And then before uh, the revolutionaries could uh, remedy their mistake, the following day, uh, Robespierre lost his head and it was the end of the Reign of Terror. So, you know, he lucked out. Well, we lucked out because now we got the book. Uh,
0: in your uh, Esquire piece, there's a photo of some of Desard's, uh descendants looking very French and literary and pretentious. Did, did he? Has he had a big impact on French literature? I mean, clearly his stuff was outrageous. Uh, as you suggest, it was repetitive. I think most people agree that the book is pretty unreadable. I mean, it might be amusing for the first few pages, but then it's just repeat, repeat, repeat. Uh, is there a
1: a, a a Sadian tradition in French literature? I mean, s- some experts have called Saad... Uh... Francis Shakespeare. Now, I would not go that far. As you said, uh, I'm not very it really explains why France writing. didn't really have a
0: Shakespeare, right? I mean, yeah, there's, not a, there's not a very rich literary tradition in France, is there? Well, I don't know you, you have folks like Moliere, you have folks like Victor Hugo, come on, you have lots of folks. Um, well, but there's no Shakespeare, as you say. I mean, if 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 the yeah. Saad is Fra- Francis Shakespeare, I'm not so sure what that says about French. Literature. Yeah, no,
1: I would not. I would not call Saad Francis Shakespeare. Now, it is fascinating. A lot of the 20th century kind of writers and philosophers in France were fascinated by Saad because, as they put it, that that he, before anyone else, kind of pulled away the pretensions and exposed kind of the dark underbelly. Of the human condition, uh, predicting even the uh, the concentration camps, uh, nihilism of the twentieth century. What did you say about
0: the concentration camps?
1: Well, some experts say that that they can see a direct parallel. What do you mean, some? Okay, so so folks in the twentieth century, after the concentration camps, went back in sot and said, "Look, you know, you can see." the beginnings of these sort of uh, kind of of these horrible concentration camps in these uh, walled up chateaus where these horrid uh, aristocrats who would lock up and torture all these people. So yeah, once again, I people, me, I'm not yes, it was, who, who are you thinking
0: sure. of in particular? I mean, I can imagine and I, I don't I'm not sure where or if he wrote anything about it, but perhaps someone like Michel Foucault might have written about this, but um it, it perhaps also ex- exposes some of the pretense of french thinking of one kind or another i mean who, who was saying it then who was connecting this side with the nazi concentration
1: camps i don't see any connection. so there were these uh these two uh german jewish philosophers who uh who escaped uh the holocaust and in the 70s they wrote a book called dialectic of the enlightenment uh yeah. which you remember their names which, uh Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. Yes. Yes, yes. yes I just looked at it.
0: Up. Yeah. So uh, Adorno and Horkheimer connected and the sad and the Holocaust?
1: Yes, as well as, um, who else did it? Uh, the uh, the French writer who wrote, uh, oh, Camus also said that that you can see the sort of nihilism uh, that emerged in the 20th century in the writing of Saad. Now, no one was saying that Saad was some sort of a fortune teller who was actually predicting these things happening. What was the reaction of the church, Joel?
0: I mean, there must've been in the 18th century, enormous outrage about this kind of work. Oh yeah. Um, I mean,
1: was he put in any excommunication lists? well, definitely the most uh, troublesome stuff that saw did was the sacrilegious stuff. It wasn't, uh, abusing prostitutes. It wasn't, uh, wasn't engaging in sodomy. It was the fact that he was kind of saying really, uh, sacrilegious stuff at the same time. Now, the issue is is that, uh, by the time the church really became aware of sod, they kind of had bigger problems on their hands, i.e. the French revolution. So by the time that, that the, the church could have started to do something, uh, it had more or less been uh, disbanded in France. He got his
0: his own name into the language. Sadism is that was that originally a, a French and, and sadomasochism? Of course, were these originally French words? When when did his his name enter the lexicon?
1: That was a uh, an Austrian uh, psychologist named uh, Kraft-Ebbing, who in the late nineteenth century uh, wrote a, wrote a book, kind of defining a lot of the kind of key terms of psychology uh, that we still use today. And he was the one one who coined the term uh, sadism or driving pleasure from pain, which is directly from the Marquis de Sade.
0: So your book um, is not just about the Marquis de Sade. It's about, of course, his curse, uh, but it's about the history of this manuscript. It passed through uh, many pairs of hands. Give me a couple of other characters who were perhaps cursed by the Marquis who owned this
1: manuscript before it got into the hands of the burning Madoff of France. Mm-hmm. So it, def- it passed uh, back and forth across Europe over the centuries. So it uh, went to an, uh, a 19th century secret erotica collector. Then it moved to a pioneering uh, German sex researcher. A researcher at the beginning of the 20th century, then was purchased by the main patrons of the Surrealist movement in Paris. Uh, it was stolen in the 1980s and smuggled Switzerland, where it uh, where it landed in the hands of one of the richest men in the world. Uh, and then finally, in 2014, it was purchased for about 10 million dollars and brought back to uh, France and landed in the heart of the world's uh, greatest rare. Rare book market where that's causing uh, more uh, chaos. And
0: then Loretier was the guy who spent the 10 million or then he bought it from
1: those people. No, no. He spent about $10 million to, to make it the centerpiece of his, uh, of his operation as one more example of how that he wanted to kind of take over the world's rare book and manuscript market. Yeah.
0: Which is not in itself, uh, in any way, a a bad or problematic thing. I mean, many people try to corner the market in one thing or the other. Um, When was the book itself published? When did it actually come out in print?
1: The first time it came out in print uh, was right around 1900, when uh, this German sex researcher named, uh, a Jewish German sex researcher named Even Bloch uh, published a, a version of it um, and he was able to get away with doing this by saying it was basically a, a, scient- a scientific research manual that it showed all the different uh, varieties of sexual intercourse. I wonder what Freud would have made of it. Did he ever write about it? Did he comment on it? I don't know if he directly commented on this manuscript, but he was close with Bloke. So, you know, there were these, you know, there was this uh, this small group of, of psychoanalysts and sex researchers who looked to literature at the time for a lot of their theories because it wasn't as if they had a lot of uh, kind of experimental research subjects that that they could look to. So they looked to literature. It's
0: inspired also many filmmakers, uh, other creatives. Pesolini's 120 Days of Sodom is a classic movie, for better or worse. We have an image from it, from Pier Paolo Pesolini's great movie. Um, What do you make of its influence in broader cultural terms in, in the 20th century, Joe.
1: It is fascinating how, mostly because most folks haven't read the thing, that it has kind of assumed this kind of mythical position, especially in the 20th century, from from films like uh, Salau to more kind of standard Hollywood fare, like uh, the movie uh, Quills. Um, but especially, especially in France, it's, Especially in Europe, it, you know, it has Saad, and his work has kind of developed this kind of legendary theme. You can go visit a recreation of Saad's uh, prison cell in the Chateau of Vincennes in Paris. Uh, restaurants in Paris have uh, have offered up uh, kind of bloody uh, or supposedly bloody uh, um, dishes named after sad very uh, very
0: edifying um yes he, he fits into france as a probably the, the largest museum in the world so i guess he's he's a he's a he's a piece he's one of the dark corners um of that museum uh you had a, a very, you, you, your last book was on humor it's called the humor code um so you're you appreciate the funny side of this. You wrote a hilarious piece, actually. I thought about you, your daughter, and the Marquis de Sade. Uh, what does your daughter think of this project?
1: Um, she's excited about it. She thankfully hasn't uh, <laughs> doesn't know the specifics. How uh, old is was, she? She is now ten. Charlotte's now ten.
0: And uh, you wrote a funny piece in which you. Uh, Talk about how uh, public you've gone on this project. Is it rather embarrassing when you go to cocktail parties? I don't know if you have cocktail parties in Denver, uh, Joel, but when you go out to the to uh, you meet other soccer moms, do you mention
1: this project? Are they horrified? I try to skim over the specifics. I try to say, you know, working on a book about an old manuscript, and they kind of I leave it at that. It's safer.
0: Well, what's become of the manuscript now? Who owns it? I mean, if if it's if they're under review, I assume that it's in the safekeeping
1: of what the state. Now, I should say, folks who have to read the book to find out, but I won't do that. Andrew. Uh, well, we do. Ago, yeah, I don't want to give
0: away all the secrets. We no, do no. want to 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 read the book, as I said. Um, it just it, it was just reviewed uh, in the New York Times. It just came out about a couple of hours ago. So uh, that that's. Um, and, and the title is The de Decides Filthy Pricey 40-Foot Scroll of Depravity. I think the headline writer uh,
1: enjoyed that one, Joe. Yes, I think so. I mean, that's the thing. People, people tend to get really excited. Uh, one of my favorite parts about that New York Times review is that I think... Uh, the, the one concern was that I hadn't quoted explicitly. Yeah. You weren't depraved from the manuscript. enough. I said that, yes. um,
0: that you needed to be more violent and grotesque. You don't look very violent or grotesque.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I guess I'm not violent, and grotesque enough for the New York times. It's too no. bad. Is. Yeah. So finally,
0: Joe, what does this tell us about the business of scrolls and literary, this sort of literary obsession with original, uh, with the original, uh, texts. Is is this edifying? Does this speak well of people who, you know, whether or not this guy's Bernie Madoff or a legitimate businessman, I mean, these these texts worth millions of dollars. Is this a growing industry? I can imagine. I mean, if anyone found the original scroll of a a Shakespeare play, uh, it would be worth many tens, probably hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: I mean that's the thing. Uh, folks have been collecting, buying, and selling uh, manuscripts as long as people have been putting words down on paper at papyrus and whatnot. Uh, the issue is, up until very recently, it was just uh, these incredibly wealthy uh, collectors. It was like collectors of of fine art, right? That this was this was something best left for uh, the cultural elite who had the expertise and money to purchase these things. Now. The idea of this company Ristaffil was like, no, everyone in the world should have access to this stuff. Everyone in the world should be able to own a piece of this stuff, and that's why we were selling, offering there they they were, they were offering up shares of the stuff for for several hundred euros on up. Uh, and so, as you said, that's not necessarily a bad idea. It's not a bit, you know, this stuff, this stuff. I mean, it's no so different from uh,
0: certainly from modern art, where millions of dollars exchange hands for stuff that. Doesn't seem to everyone to have a lot of value. Uh,
1: yes, and I think the bigger concern is that uh, this t- this entire operation was opaque. That there was no transparency in terms of how the stuff was being valued. Um, um, and as I noted in, a, in an op-ed I just wrote, it's in some ways similar to uh, to private equity here in this country, where you where you have all of these uh, workers' uh, pension money that's now being vested into these private equity funds and they're being promised these fantastic returns but mm. the issue is no one knows exactly how these private equity is valuing the companies that they're buying up so some people say you know we could see the same sort of collapse mm. uh at a much wider scale you know here in this yeah country. we're doing a
0: show with gretchen Morgenson, um uh you know in a few weeks who's just written a book exposing or in her view at least exposing private equity um, yeah. so, so, so you're suspicious, Joel.
1: I, I am suspicious. And I think, uh, as you know, Andrew, uh, journalists like us need to be a bit suspicious.
0: We have to be. And is it finally, I don't want to give away all the secrets in the book because we do want people to buy it. It's just out the curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript and the biggest scandal in literary history. It's very readable and, and very smart. Um, congratulations, uh, Joel. Yeah. Uh, is there a curse? Does anyone sure hope not.
1: This, this this scroll? Are they cursed for life? I sure hope not, because considering I spent five years of my life working on this and wrote a book about it, if there is a curse, I'm going to be screwed. So hopefully.